Hey everyone back again. Finally, was hoping to be back last week, but had to have my gallbladder removed. I'm no medical doctor, but if you ever get a sharp shooting pain right underneath your sternum, right at the top of your abdomen after you eat, maybe it's your gallbladder worth getting checked out. Anyways, it was a huge thing, but we're good now. We're back. And we are going to jump into like so many texts related to one of the courses I'm teaching because that's what I have to do now. I have to cater to the courses I'm teaching because that's what I have time to read. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be covering texts that are important to the study of justice. Specifically, over the next few weeks, we're going to start with Thomas Hobbes, well today, we're going to start with Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, then into John Locke's Two Treaties of Government, and then we'll get into Mill's Utilitarianism. Which is good, because I've never read these texts before, and now I've had to read them, and know about them, and I'm going to share them with you. Now before jumping into Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, hi, I'm David, I explain philosophical concepts, ideas, texts, everything to help you on your philosophical journey. Uh, maybe you just like to listen to this because my voice is soothing, maybe it helps you sleep, I don't know. That's why I no longer have the intro tune. I want this to be very calm very chill and you can listen to it and take from it what you will if you want to follow me anywhere else you can do so on instagram or tiktok or i don't know anywhere else where it is listed in the description if you're listening to this as a podcast you're also able to find it on youtube or sometimes i have videos accompanying what i do which is fun isn't that fun or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it as just a podcast on pretty much any podcast platform under all the same names. And then you can just listen to it. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe on YouTube, leave comments, reviews on podcast platforms, whatever's at your disposal, that would help me out a lot. Or you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. And maybe the biggest thing is just tell your friends. If they're interested in this stuff, this is easier than going and reading, you know, 400 pages of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. Hopefully I can provide you a succinct spark notes-like presentation of it here, because we don't all have time to go and read all of these texts. Now the last thing I want to say before actually jumping into Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan is that this is going to be five parts. Episode 1, this episode, is going to cover chapters 1 to 9. Episode 2 is going to cover chapters 10 to 17, and that's going to wrap up part 1. Of the entire book. Episode 3 will cover chapters 18 to 23, episode 4, 24 to 31. That'll wrap up part 2 of the book, and then episode 5 will cover chapters 32 all the way to the end, which will encompass, encapsulate parts 3 and 4 of the text. This will also be laid out in the description wherever you're watching this, so if you want to refer to, you know, whichever episode, to know what's going to be covered there, you can always do it there. Now, finally, okay, good, without further ado, let's jump into Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan written in the mid-17th century, in 1651. So, like any other text, it's, or many other texts, starts with an introduction. And in it, he asks, what is the difference really, it's a really interesting opening, actually. He's like, what is the difference between a human and a machine? How is a heart different from, for example, a spring? really, or a gear, or whatever, like any other machine parts. For him, for Hobbes, both we and machines have a creator. Machines were created by 
you know, machine maker, whatever they're called, machinator, I don't know, by a machine maker, and we were created by God for Hobbes. And so because of this, he infers or he makes the conclusion that we must always acknowledge that as humans, we are immersed in some amount of artificiality from language to the cultures we inhabit to everything else. All of these things are not necessarily our own. They're just creations. And because we ourselves are creations, they're like a creation of a creation, really coming to us from the first creator that is God for Hobbes. So the most pronounced of all of our creations is our Leviathan. Leviathan refers to our commonwealth or state, which is but an artificial man for Hobbes, though of greater stature and strength than the natural, for whose protection and defense it was intended. So the Leviathan in this text refers to the state as you know, we're thinking about it here as more of an abstract idea. He's not referring to any specific states, like there's one pure true state. We'll kind of get into that. He's just referring to people living in a commonwealth in which they have agreed that there would be like some kind of ruling body in order to best represent them and protect them. And states have been found for almost pretty much all of human history. Uh, well, it's debatable. 10,000 years, let's say, according to maybe the most mainstream archaeology. So as he suggests, this Leviathan, the state, the commonwealth, is like a human body. It is a creation. We've created it as humans, and it shares some of our properties. That is, its legal bodies are its nerves. Wealth is its power. The people's safety is its business. Counselors are its memory, equity and laws are its reason and will, and discord, war, sedition are its death, its diseases. And this side point here, but this is an idea that would be taken up by a really interesting thinker named Roberto Esposito, and uh, he has this trilogy of books, I forget the order, they go, I think they go communitas, bios, and immunitas, in which he makes a similar case that the state or society, and it's been a long time since I've read it, so maybe the details are a little iffy, state and society are like a body, and they need to be inoculated, like vaccinated, against evils by integrating some amount of the evils they perceive within them. So this idea of states and, and, and societies acting like human bodies, is it goes back a long time, but it's also in present-day conversations as well. So as I said at the outset, the book is divided into four parts, and each episode you know, will cover different parts of each part, where the first part will deal with the concept of man, dealing with humans, and it will tackle the question of Leviathan's creator and its benefactor. Humans create Leviathan, the state, in order for the state to benefit them. The second section, or the second part of the book, will look at the commonwealth itself, and it will examine how people enter into it and the role of sovereignty within that commonwealth. Part three, we'll look at specifically the Christian origins of the commonwealth within the Bible, 
like what justifications there are in the Bible for a commonwealth and what parts of Christian doctrine motivate and influence the kind of best way to form a commonwealth, a state, Leviathan. And then fourth, we'll look at, is called of the kingdom of darkness, and it will look at how societies fall. Those that do not adhere to the Bible's teachings and properly adopt its edicts and all of its prescriptions will fall. And that's those are the parts of the, the book we have here. Now, within all of this, the most important task a human can undertake is their own self-examination. Not to understand themselves, but to understand humanity. And this question or this act of pursuing truth and understanding of humans is the key to understanding humans within a state. And that'll put us here into part one of man and chapter one of sense. So humans have no thought that can't be traced to their receiving sense information. For anyone who's read Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, this will be called sense perception. In order for us to have any thoughts at all, we need to have experienced the world. We need to have felt things and and heard things and seen things, at least so far as our senses will permit us. And we know stuff in our world because our senses have at some point and in some way been acted upon by an external object. That is, as humans, for Hobbes, we don't come into the world with knowledge already embedded within us. We come into the world with the capacity to learn, to experience, and from there to accrue reason and knowledge, rationality. So the image or idea that our mind conjures up about an object in any case, like you think about in your head right now, you think about a chair, for example, any image that we conjure up has nothing to do with that object. The chair in your mind right now has nothing to do with an actual chair. The chair in your mind is not taking up space. It's existing in time. You're holding it in your mind in time. It's not taking up any space. And it has nothing to do with an actual chair. And this is especially true when we consider how things, sounds, tastes, etc., can move us emotionally. Non-corporeal things, that is non-physical things like images in our mind, can affect us, they can move us, but they must have come to us through some kind of experience. Now, obviously, this is a contentious idea because if we fully accept this idea that we are just, you know, we just uh, are essentially determined purely by our environment or our environment, our experiences will dictate the limits of our reason, How do we then account for imagination or for newness? Because if we were just products of our environment, we would only be able to replicate that environment. But as humans and other animals are able to do the same, we can create new things. We can create new ideas, new images not found in nature. For example, geometry. How many times have you seen a triangle in nature? I mean, like a true triangle, three sides, 180 degrees, three sides of equal length, 180 degrees, you don't, that doesn't exist in nature. We conjure this up and from it are are able to infer new truths about our experiences in the world. We are actually able to shape the world because of the application of something that's not found in nature, not found anywhere 
in the universe. Maybe there's triangles somewhere, but like it's not really part of our everyday experience. So with this, Hobbes is against the Aristotelian idea that there that things in the world exist for us. And if you if you read Aristotle, it you know it depends which which text you draw from. But in Aristotle, it seems clear that like if things are enjoyable in the world, like the scent or sight of a flower, a bird song, if it sounds good to us, Aristotle's like, oh, well, this is a sign that there's like some kind of ordering to the universe in that there some kind of creator or creators or like we are more than just pure animals. That is, we have been given the opportunity to have contemplation and reflection through our ability to enjoy things for the sake of enjoying them, almost as though those things exist for us. Hobbes doesn't buy that at all, though. Hobbes is like, we, you know, we are just animals. We are not, in, also, we are not, as Aristotle says, political animals. That is, for Aristotle, we attain our highest sense of being when we exist in a political way, when we organize together and figure out how to optimize ourselves in a social setting. Hobbes has a much bleaker portrait or image of humanity. He thinks that we are actually like violent, war-prone creatures that happen to like enjoy things because we've agreed that they're like they're worth enjoying, not because they are intrinsically enjoyable. And that puts us here into chapter two of imagination. So imagination is a retained sense of something an image in our mind that decays with time. So the image of the chair in your mind, maybe it came from somewhere specific. When I said think of a chair, maybe there was a chair in, I don't know, a relative's home or, or on their lawn or wherever uh, and that, that came into your mind in the first place. And that image in your mind has probably changed a bit from what it actually looked like to you in the moment. And so with this, at least Hobbes's imagination of imagination, he's like, it can only go as far as what your experience has allowed it to, to essentially give you, give you. And these, and imagination is prone to decay after time. And after enough time, that imagination actually becomes memory. And it is a sign of having experienced something. So dreaming is imagination during sleep. And it blurs the distinction between being awake and being, being asleep. So a lack of knowledge of dreams and the fanciful makes people susceptible to superstitions like fairies and goblins. He says that witches, too, are deluded for believing their craft will do anything. And so they are justly persecuted. Now, this is probably a good time to explain something. In, you might have, when I gave you the little bit table of contents of what we're going to cover here, the first two books or parts of this book, I allocate two episodes each to. The last two parts of this book, I dedicate one total episode to because that's where he just draws from biblical analogies and biblical examples to justify pretty much everything that he said. And if you're new here, for those of you that are not new here, you probably know that I'm not a huge fan of that. You know, there's some historical value there, uh, but it's, I just struggle with it, obviously, because I believe firmly in secularism. But the amazing thing here 
is that he suggests that a lack of proper knowledge of the difference between imagination and truth or between dreams and waking life, all of this is justification for violence. If someone is unable to make that distinction, they are therefore justly per persecuted as women were as they were being accused of being witches. Now, chances are you're listening to this and chances are you're saying, but wait, David, 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 didn't you say that Hobbes is like a big Bible dude? Doesn't he love the Bible? Uh, isn't that full of like spirits, angels, stuff that, you know, can't be seen really by everyone, just a few people, like as though it's just in their minds? Well, yeah, but he says those are actually okay. In those cases, uh, these images, ghosts, superstitions, those are okay because Christian doctrine is perfect and it is true. It is the absolute word of God, yada, yada, yada. Even though the Bible was written by who knows how many authors across who knows how many languages across who knows how long, uh, I guess we, I think people know how long uh, the time frame is of having written the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Uh, but yeah, you know. It's hard to take this stuff seriously, but there, of course, there's historical value here, especially the consideration of states and humans' place in those states. But yeah, take it all with a grain of salt. I just can't believe this guy just keeps it out. Every time, he just hates religion. He just hates it. Now, moving to chapter three of the consequence or train of imaginations. So these are mental discourses. That is, imaginations are mental discourses or thoughts, and they can assume two forms. They can either be unguided, that is somewhat spontaneous, or they can be guided, which is thought that is meant to arrive somewhere. So I set my sight on like proving the quadratic formula. I don't know why I thought of that. The quadratic formula, for anyone who took math in North American high school, I don't know, where, all across the world, Europe, probably every, I don't know, everywhere do you, are you forced to learn this silly formula? Uh, <laughs> you learn the quadratic formula and you set out to prove it. You have a goal in mind and you'll arrive there through your reason. You will arrive at a conclusion and prove how the quadratic formula helps you, I don't know, solve for X in a, in a, in a quadratic parabolic function, whatever. So guided thoughts seek to either find cause behind an effect that is common between humans and animals. So a guided thought will be like, oh, uh, I touched the stove, it burned, so therefore the stove must be hot, and therefore heat must hurt me. It's an example of a guided thought. It's a limited, you know, it's, we didn't go very far in our guided journey, but it's a guided thought. The second type of guided thought imagines possible consequences to an action and this for him is reserved for humans only and he suggests that we conjure fictions when we imagine things to come so when we draw from past events knowledge experience we exemplify wisdom so what is permitted to us in this form of guided reason that is the one that tries to find out possible consequences of events is limited by our own experiences by our history so it is in the imagination that we find 
God for Hobbes because its power and magnitude, God's power and magnitude as infinite, are incomprehensible to us otherwise. So this, this you know, anyone, if you have a more of a broader uh, awareness or knowledge of the history of European philosophy, you'll know that this is not a widely accepted idea, that we only find proof of God within the imagination. So someone like Spinoza would disagree and that we'd actually find God within the everyday, within the physical properties of the world, within our increasing scientific knowledge, and so on. These are examples of God. But in any case, Hobbes is exemplifying a highly religious, uh, a religiously motivated philosophical understanding of the nature of God, where it is only available to us by a possible speculation of its possible existence while always being assured of that existence because of our ability to actually contemplate it. So we cannot actually fathom the infinite. We can speculate that it exists, but you know, no, no one of us can actually totally hold the infinite in our minds. That'd be impossible. But our very capacity to speculate about it implies that it must therefore exist, even if we can't actually pin it down. And that puts us here into chapter four of speech. So speech is what sets us apart from animals and permits us to cooperate and form societies. <clears throat> Wrong, Hobbes. But apparently, you know, he's 17th century. He's, you know, apparently only humans have speech, have language. Uh, but anyways, speech first came to us. It was given to us by God to Adam. Now, obviously, speech has many benefits. It allows us to communicate, it allows us to share experiences, and so on. But it can also be used to deceive ourselves and to deceive others. I can use speech to fool someone into giving me all their money. So speech is not in itself a good thing for Hobbes. Speech and language allows us to name things and make their comprehension easy. At least this is the good side of speech. Also, speech permits us to locate universal qualities out of particular events, experiences, phenomenon, phenomena to save on labor. For, so for example, all crows are black. I say that and now we have an a priori, that is a universal truth arrived at through reason, uh, truth about all crows or all triangles have three sides. This is a, just a truth that we've arrived at that has come to us because of speech. Speech is what allows us to actually convey and to agree upon these universal truths. Words permit us to have numbers, to have cooperation, and so on. Now, like, of course, speech is always ambiguous. It's always going to be up for interpretation. When I said a chair, when I asked you to think about a chair, chances are every single one of you listening conjured up a different idea of a chair in your mind. Does that mean we can't all talk about chairs? No, it, of course we can. But there's always going to be some amount of interpretation, some amount of misunderstanding whenever we communicate with language. Because how I imagine a chair is going to be different from you. And that's dealing with a physical object that's relatively easy. When we start talking about things like God or justice, or truth, 
I mean, especially God, like the idea of God is so, is so filtered to us by organized religion that it's, it's almost like we, <laughs> we can't actually develop a relationship with it in any other way. And so speech can be monopolized. It can be uh, shaped and controlled by various forces. Now for the Greeks, a couple of millennia before uh, Hobbes, they equated with logos, the word for logos, they equated speech and reason. Speech permits us, for the Greeks, permits us to arrive at higher truths, more so than writing. Writing is dead. Writing, you know, you put a word down on the page in writing and no one can disagree with it. You can't argue with the written word. You can argue with a human to prove them wrong, to arrive at higher truth. And in the way that the ideas need to be always properly justified. If I write something down and disseminate it to the world, like on Twitter or stupid X, if I do that, sure, there's going to be people who probably agree with it. Does that mean it's good? If I cast a wide enough net, I'm probably going to catch some fish. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. Whereas if I say something in, a, in an agora-like setting, as the Greeks would, where there's a bunch of people around, they can argue with me, I can't just say something without possibly not experiencing or being told that I'm wrong. So to engage in speech is to open oneself up to possible criticism, to force us to justify our speech, to force us to justify our arguments and to prove them, which opens us up to reason and to possible truth or coming closer, moving us toward truth. At least, <laughs> this is my one-minute explanation of the history of Logos in Greek society. There's a lot more to it than that, but just so you get it. Uh, that puts us into chapter 5 of reason and science. Reason is the ability to reckon the consequences of general names agreed upon for the marking and signifying of our thoughts. It's a matter of deduction by adding or subtracting something not immediately present in our minds or world and following through with possible result. Now, this is also interesting for me as well, especially given his very strong Christian disposition and his reliance on the Bible, in that, as you will see, much of his reasoning just depends upon a faith in the written word of the Bible as being the word of God. You know, he firmly believes this is the word of God, and that, that's fine. But in any case, he's suggesting that there is a, an endpoint to his own reason. He's like, once I accept the Bible and its teachings, that is it, the end, done. When I think, even within Christian tradition here, it would hardly, that is the process of reason, would hardly be satisfied with the Bible's words. And now, certainly, there, you know, there's lots of people demonstrating that much of our organized, accepted knowledge of the Bible has come to us by false translations or by incorrect translations of it. So, I mean, how well do we actually know it? Anyway, moving on. So, of course, there are always opportunities to go astray within our reason. If I set my sights on solving the quadratic formula or proving it, whatever, I will probably go wrong. I'm not, I have no idea how to prove it. And so we have judges in our world to adjudicate according to accepted laws, edicts, norms, doctrines, etc. 
That is, in the employment of our reason, the best way we have to actually assess the merits of our reason, the merits of our conclusion, is to open them up to these tribunal-type spaces and people who can assess the merits of our arguments and the conclusions we arrive at in our reason. So we suggest that philosophers are the likeliest to go astray. And he hates Aristotle. He, he does not like Aristotle at all. Does not at all. And he thinks that from the Greeks, specifically Aristotle, we see humanity start to fall and start to be led astray down sophistical paths or start to be uh, led astray by persuasive arguments and not by the truth. Of course, the truth for him is just Christian doctrine, but, and among other things, but he thinks that philosophers are the likeliest to go astray in their application of reason because they don't set out definitions of what they are talking about. They just talk about things willy-nilly, at least according to Hobbes. Additionally, philosophers mis misattribute terms to things, like they talk about faith, just uncritically, when, of course, for Hobbes, faith refers to properly, uh, proper faith in the Christian God. Thirdly, they locate things in humans that aren't there, like color in the body. And he's just mining certain philosophers of saying things that he doesn't, doesn't agree with. Fourth, similarly, when uh, improper attributes are bestowed upon human individuals, like a living creature is, is, is a genus or, or something like that, uh, fifthly, when human action is improperly understood, like, for example, someone's command is their will, when a command could be motivated by other things. Sixth, the use of metaphors or tropes in the place of truth. Seventh, the use of language that has no le life outside of the academy, which I, I mean, of all of them, I probably agree with that one. I mean, philosophers tend to be very exclusionary. They like to use words that are hard to follow for everyday folk, uh, myself included. And that's, that's probably a, it's probably a pretty bad sign. I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but if someone's talking about something related to philosophy and I or other people who study this stuff don't understand it, chances are it's not, you're not helping the world at all. Chances are it's just meant for academic standing. But that, that's just me. That's just me. Now, in the face of all of this, he's clear that we must embrace reason, at least the reason that he is espousing, not one that's relying upon metaphors or misattributing qualities to humans or imparting human qualities upon, you know, non-human things, whatever. As humans, we all exemplify some reason. And so the biggest threat is not people, that is not learning reason, but those who learn the wrong reason for Hobbes. And the wrong reason, of course, is going to be anything that opposes Christian doctrine, which isn't totally influential here. That is, in the first two parts of this text, when he gets into the, of the Christian commonwealth and of the kingdom of darkness in parts three and four, then it's totally apparent. But here, it seems like he's trying to really prove what he's saying without just appealing to scripture and to say that, oh, this is true because we find it in the Bible. He does that later. But now he's, he's doing something else and it's, it's hidden. 
but it'll, be, it'll become clear. And that puts us into chapter six. I just can't believe this guy just always with religion with this guy. I'm sorry if that excludes you. Uh, and that puts us into chapter six of the interior beginnings of voluntary notions commonly called the passions and the speeches by which they are expressed. The passions very roughly meaning emotions, what drives us, what moves us. So all animals are guided by involuntary and voluntary motion. So first is breathing. That's involuntary for us. Blinking, maybe. These are things that we do without thinking about it. That is, they are involuntary actions or involuntary motions, whereas voluntary motions are things that we willfully do, like walking to the store or whatever, picking up a glass of water, whatever is something we're actively doing deliberately. So we are involuntarily, or we are involuntary, drawn to things like food. And this is called our appetite or desire. We, we need to eat. Otherwise, we probably won't last very long. We need to eat. And so we have, we are drawn to these things. And these are examples of our passions. So we have an aversion towards those things that we don't like. We are drawn to things we like. We are turned away from things that we dislike. So love and desire are bound together with desire, signifying the object we love, at least when that object is absent. We desire something that isn't there. I don't desire something that's that I have, because then it's no longer desire. It's just possession or love. I should say you love something that you have. You desire that thing you love that you don't have. And the same with hate. You hate something that's that's in front of you that you that you don't like. You have an aversion to something that's not quite there. Like I have an aversion to I don't even know. Uh eggs. Certain ways like for some reason, just eggs on their own. I'm not a huge fan of. And so like they're I, I don't tend to gravitate to them. And so for that reason, there's an aversion there. Now, there are some other passions, other emotions that he considers here as well, not just hate, aversion, love, desire. He also considers contempt, where contempt is directed to those things someone finds vile or inconsiderable. So when dealing with emotions like love, hate, contempt, desire, we know that they are subjective emotions. For everybody, they're going to be different and are not elicited by specific objects universally. So not everyone has the same perception of eggs as I do, and, or anything else. That is, until people enter a commonwealth, oh, here we go, that is, until people enter a commonwealth and can establish laws and principles that all must follow, people won't agree upon certain things. Commonwealth or society, the Leviathan, allows people to unite in common goals towards things. He then goes on to define many emotions, and I'm not going to go into each of them. It's like, uh, if you ever read Spinoza's Ethics, it's just like <laughs> maybe a hundred pages, a few hundred pages of like him just defining emotions, hate, contempt, despondency, attraction, desire, just defining all of these emotions. 
and I'm not going to do that because that's just it's just going to be a list and I, it's not totally relevant. You can go and look at it if you want, but it's just a list of how he defines emotions. It doesn't really play a part in the rest of the book at all. So these would be too, too much to cover. And he uses these essentially to highlight that humans see themselves apart from animals in their ability to think and search for causes behind events. That is what sets us apart for Hobbes from animals. We have the ability to reflect. We have the ability to look for causes behind events. And this allows us to agree upon certain things together. And this is a condition, one of the primary conditions to allow us to come into groups and to form states, commonwealths, societies, our Leviathan. Now, as I mentioned, I'm, after this, I'm going to cover John Locke's books uh, and, then, and then Mill. And it's really interesting to see how these people differ in their conception of the state and the role of humans in it. It's, it's super interesting because in a lot of ways they agree upon lots of stuff, but they disagree and they disagree upon minute things. But those minute things make all the difference. And I'm going to do episodes specifically like John Locke versus uh, Hobbes. I'm probably going to do, and firstly, I might do like Hobbes versus Socrates slash Plato, you know, you know, uh, and then Locke versus Hobbes and then Mill versus Locke. Or Mill versus, you know, all that stuff. Because it's important, I think, to get a sense of how they differ and what each one of them are doing that is noteworthily, noteworthily, noteworthy and different from the others. So in our ability to search for causes, before I went on my tangent, we can infer or we can properly speculate, we can commonly agree upon what is good and what is bad. And that puts us here into chapter 7 of the ends or resolutions of discourse. So as humans uh, that obtain truth through language, we will never have all of the truth, obviously, because all past events are open to interpretation. And as we said at the beginning, everything that happens in the past, every one of our experiences are open to decay in our minds. They will disappear with time. They will decay. And so we are, uh, we are not perfect. We are imperfect as humans in terms of our memory. Only God has absolute true knowledge. Any doubt we may have then of scripture means doubt towards the person who wrote it and not God itself. And here into chapter 8 of the virtues commonly called intellectual and their contrary defects. So intellectual virtues come in two forms. That is natural and acquired virtues. Natural intellectual virtue isn't from birth, but comes about through experience. Whereas acquired intellectual virtue arises through instruction. So, you know, it, it, we experience the world and we learn things from it. But no matter how much chess you watch, for example, if you watch chess, or watch any sport. Watching it won't make you the best at it. It might improve you a little bit, but it is only through instruction, through teaching, that you will actually be able to really improve at that thing. Or like listening to music won't make you a good musician. So natural intellectual wit or prowess 
comes through experience, whereas acquired uh, comes through instruction. So acquired wit is reason and permits the formation of, uh, of science, cause and effect, to be able to actually use your reason in contributing to knowledge. So we are led astray from intellectual virtues if our emotions and passions drive us in either directions, like it drives us too far away or too much towards a certain emotion away from our reason. And it maybe, for example, our love of power, our desire to get rich, will eclipse our pursuit of knowledge and our use of reason. And that is wrong for, uh, for Hobbes. So we are mad for Hobbes when our passions do not align with the established norm. So in a situation in which there are enough people together to have established what is normal, in order to designate anyone who falls outside of that norm as being mad. And this permits the norm that is the established social body to move together within a commonwealth because it is able to then exclude or correct those people who are considered to be outside of the norm. So there are some who believe that madness can be caused by demons, for example. But Hobbes is not convinced because he doesn't find any proof of that in scripture. He doesn't, there are no examples of demons in, in the Bible. Just people being swayed by their passions and cured of their madness. Funnily, he always suggests, funnily, he also suggests that people who use uh, wordy language to the point of absurdity are themselves mad. And that puts us here into chapter 9 of the several subjects of knowledge. So there are two kinds of knowledge. There's knowledge of facts and knowledge of consequences. First is knowledge of what is or was true. I'm able to know that the United States Declaration of uh, or Sovereignty, Declaration of Independence happened in 1776. Uh, that, that's just a historical fact. If you believe that numbers exist and dates exist and so on, assuming that, then that's an example of a fact. Whereas knowledge of consequences is a little different. It is necessary for science in its knowledge of cause and effect. To have knowledge of facts does not necessarily mean that you're going to be very good at predicting what different causes will produce. It takes more training to actually be able to do that or a different set of knowledges and understanding, not to just be able to regurgitate what has happened in the past, uh, but to be able to anticipate what will happen in the future. This is why we don't People who, who go on Jeopardy, we don't elect them to public office because they know lots of facts. They know more facts than probably anybody on the planet, but I, actually, I have no idea if that's true. They know lots of facts, but we don't celebrate them for that or give them any kind of power because of it. It's not that useful to just be able to recite facts. What's more useful is to be able to predict consequences. Now, those people who have a strong grasp of history might you know, they might know facts and they might also be pretty well equipped to determine the consequences of events. We learn about things like the Holocaust, for example, so that we know what hate 
what anti-Semitism, what racism can lead to. And we oppose them because of the consequences that they might produce. Now, specifically, knowledge of history can be broken into two camps of knowledge for Hobbes. There's natural history, that's knowledge of the earth, the history of plants and animals and so on. And then there's civil history, which is history of humans, history of societies, history of what these things have done. So record of science, which is properly called philosophy, centers uh, many different topics. That is science. It centers science or knowledge of consequences. There's philosophy, uh, or which is philosophy. There's also physics or consequences from qualities, the size and shape of things. Uh, and these are broken down into many subtopics. It also includes knowledge of civil society. And he's writing this at a time when, you know, in the 17th century, to study philosophy meant you were also studying math and science and astronomy. All of these things went together. Different parts of the world would be a little different, of course, but they all fell under the same banner. It's not like today where there's like the philosophy department and then there's the physics department and chemistry department where you have to like split these things up just so so brutally. Like it's it's... I don't know why we do that. I, I'm sure that there's a material reason. I just don't know what it is. But things were different back then. So he's uh, kind of collapsing these all under the banner of science. So even philosophy belonged to that. And yeah, let's wrap that up here. Next time we're going to pick up from chapter 10 and get to the end of part one. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. You can always leave a comment on either podcast platform or on YouTube if you listen to it anywhere there and and I'll see it and, and that'll be great. But yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe and uh, on that note, I'll catch you next time. Take care.